You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse. It's my pleasure to introduce our guests on Inverse for today. Uh, Two brothers, Mark Glanville and Luke Glanville. Mark is an associate professor of pastoral theology at Regent College, Vancouver, and an Old Testament scholar. He is the author of Adopting the Stranger as Kindred in Deuteronomy and Freed to be God's Family, the Book of Exodus. Luke is associate professor in the Department of International Relations at Australian National University. He's the author of Sovereignty and Responsibility to Protect a New History. And they also are the co-authors of the new book, Refuge, Reimagined Biblical Kinship in Global Politics. And I should have figured it out from the book itself because there's these themes of jazz within the book that come up a little bit. Um, But Mark is also a jazz pianist and Luke is a jazz drummer as well. And they play jazz together, improv and play. And that's just beautiful the way that they do music and write books together. I'm a little jealous because my brothers and I do not get along that well. But um, but we're so grateful to have you on. Um, And so just welcome. to, to inverse. And before we really get started, I would love, um, do you guys have a, a verse, a passage that you guys can just uh, set the, sto- the stage and, and set the atmosphere that we can dive into later? Can you uh, just read that for us now? Yeah, the passage that we've chosen is from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10, a very well-known passage for immigration and refugee advocates from verse 18 that Yahweh executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving them food and clothing. Love the stranger, therefore, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Amen. 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 Well, may the Lord add a blessing to the hearing and doing of his word, as uh, some of us like to say. Um, G'day, you two. It's it's really nice to have not one, but two Australians on. Drew, it's, it's been a little while since we've had some Aussies in, in the mix. So maybe this is uh, bringing a little bit of a balance uh, to, to on at once. Um, uh, now, I, I know Luke is a devout inverse listener and um, Mark, uh, there, there is a agnosticism in <laughs> my knowledge as to your inverse um, uh, participation. But our standard question that at least Luke will be well prepared for is uh, when do you first remember encountering the Bible? And uh, we've never asked that of brothers before. Mm. And I, I don't know if you, if you want to answer it separately or, um, well, you're jazz musicians. So I'll, I'll let you two do what you do best. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I was saying just before uh, that I've been thinking for a long time, what would be my answer to this question? Because I keep hearing you guys ask it to inverse guests. I'd be very interested to hear what Mark's answer is too and how similar they are or how different. I, right. I think my um, my early memories of encountering scripture are sitting around the dinner table at home, um, Mark and I, mum and dad and our sister Sarah uh, and dad would read Bible stories to us. Um, and And really growing up, we grew up in a, lovely Christian home. We were surrounded with Bible stories. We loved them. Um, 
I took for granted that they were the truth. I think I probably also just took them for granted as stories. Mm. Um, and uh, to the point that us as kids, I don't know how much Mark was responsible for this or if it was uh, his younger siblings, myself and Sarah, but we would often sabotage dad's Bible reading by breaking out into <laughs> uncontrolled laughter to the point that he would often give, give up on reading Bible stories for a couple of weeks and try again a couple of weeks later. Yes, um, that's true. Yeah, and, and I think it's, there's a sense in which my, my first memories of encountering scripture, therefore, are of a thing that we weren't being taught to revere, perhaps, but instead just encounter as the story of God's creation, God's world, mm. Uh, and his relationship with his people, his kids, including myself. Mm. And so it was always a, always a, a thing of warmth and comfort and safety, I think, um, my relationship to the Bible. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's really interesting. My first memory, Luke, and all as a, well, is sitting in our father's office and he, uh, reading through the early chapters of Romans, verse by verse with me and helping me understand it, it was the Good News Bible that we all read back then and with those <laughs> awesome little sketches. Yeah. And I remember finding Romans very hard to understand and I only really understood it if Dad was there walking for, for the, the logical flow. Uh, but the feeling and the impression was intimacy. You know, intimacy with my father, intimacy with the text, intimacy with God. So this, this intimacy, this togetherness, yeah, this kinship, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I probably didn't know the Pauline epistles any better by the end of any of those weekly sessions, but I knew the <laughs> significance of it from the intimacy. I knew what it meant. It meant being together. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that is. That's really cool. Yeah, so I'm curious then, um, and maybe you guys teased at it a little bit, but in what ways, like, as you're encountering these scriptures, and you can think both these early encounters and as maybe as you journey with the scripture as well, like, were you experiencing it as liberative or as mm. oppressive or something else? Like, how, how, what kind of interaction and what kind of experience and encounter are you um, in your own body? How, how are you interpreting and making sense of its um, meaning for you and your life in that way? Yeah, I think for me, liberative in the sense that um, uh, it brought to me a conviction that I'm saved by God's grace, but also in the sense of a, a freeing call to not cling tightly to the things of this world, not, not cling tightly to concerns for wealth or um, reputation or self-interest and I, mm. I think through to today that's a fundamental idea that shapes so much of my thinking about politics and international politics and my writing and research I think um not 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 that's not to say that I always act in that way or that I'm always thinking in 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 that um way but I think it I've I've always found it liberating to know that we're not called by God to be relentlessly, aggressively, selfishly seeking after our own interests and our advancement. Mm. Um, and there's something quite freeing 
in letting go of that or trying to let go of that, knowing that I can let go of that and I can let go of the fears and anxieties that come with that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Mark? Yeah, I think um, a part of my relationship with the Bible is related to my relationship with the world as a jazz musician, to be honest. Um, and I was a jazz musician before I was a biblical scholar. Um, I think in my young adult years, there wasn't a lot of integration. I, I heard a psychologist explain in brain development, often young adults think more black and white. And I don't think in my twenties, hmm. early twenties, anyway, I was able to bring the creativity of jazz, uh, into my Christian discipleship. But now I think that reading the Bible is very much like a jazz musician and playing jazz. Luke and I have talked about this as jazz musicians. We learn the jazz tradition. We spend literally thousands, tens of thousands of hours listening to those CDs and tapes and records as we used to and learning the tradition. And then each fresh performance, we create new sounds, always embedded in the tradition, new creativity, new imagination, but always drawing on the tradition. I think as a Bible reader now, my Bible reading is more integrated with life and with my life as a jazz musician. I think we learn the tradition and we, we learn the ethical trajectory of scripture by digging deeply, by studying it, by bringing all the tools of exegesis. But now in this fresh cultural moment, we're called to play the tradition afresh again. What new imaginations, mm. what new creativity. And I think as a Bible reader and as a Christian, I'm struck by the relentless imagination and creativity of the biblical authors in their time, in a diversity of ways across a diverse time period of salvation history i mean even just as an example the old testament writers appropriating the trope of a covenant mm -hmm. which in the end was a very oppressive even mm. militant metaphor of the empire the great yeah. assyrian kings made a covenant which was a hegemonic militarized written treaty with the israelite kings and the small kings and then the but then these biblical scribes took that up and told the story through the covenant of a God who gives the land instead of taking it, you know, mm -hmm. which yeah. is incredibly, we think, say, go to the new Testament, you know, the peace of Christ, which in my church, we say every Sunday, mm -hmm. I mean, the Pax Romana was this oppressive so-called peace of Rome, you know, the mm -hmm. creativity of the biblical authors amazes me. And so I think I just, as a jazz musician, I think of learning the tradition deeply being deeply seated in the tradition and then what fresh improvisations can any and every church or us as global church play today mm. wow that's really good that's good that's an answer drew yeah that <laughs> is this i don't know i feel like i might have mark when we met at aar sbl i wasn't yeah. sure you might have told me about your jet because uh, it reminds me of i don't know if you've are you familiar with, um, there's a pastor actually in Colorado, uh, Robert Gelinas, he's an African-American pastor. He has a book called Finding the Groove. Um, oh. And it's basically huh. the gospel and jazz, basically this whole thing. But anyway, hmm. it just seems like you guys hmm, would cool. appreciate that, cool. um, hmm. given I've, all that you guys talk about. I've yeah. noticed that Otis Moss III has a new book out, yeah. Blue Note Preaching. Yeah, Blue Note uh -huh. Preaching. Yep. Which I yeah, really right. appreciate. We've assigned yep. it in our preaching course at Regent College, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really cool yeah. book. That's a good one, too. It's yep. a fantastic book. Yep. Um, just coincidentally, this week I was writing about Miles Davis's quote about don't play the notes, play the space in between. Mm -hmm. And um, this next question 
it seeks to get at. And Drew and I, we play with it. Um, we kind of hesitate each time we ask it because it it is a question that is about the space in between the notes that um, whether uh, scholars or pastors or activists or, or creatives um, are playing. And uh, sometimes we word it around uh, what is the hermeneutical gift out of your own life experience? Like what from your particular experience um, can provide a lens for others uh, to fill in what sometimes is referred to as, as white space, the importance of the, the silence in between, um, whether it's the, uh, the, the preaching notes or the social change notes or um, uh, whatever vocation people are engaged in. But Drew and I were talking earlier and we're thinking this might be fun given um, how important I think your book is. And I, I really do think it is revolutionary um, if Christians were to enter into this. Um, I know you call it a biblical kinship, but I think of it as prophetic kinship um, that it could really um, transform how the church engages uh, in this moment of history. I'm wondering what, what particular um, gift came out of this process of writing for you both and what gift do you hope that others receive um, in the writing of this book? Well, I like that metaphor of space. Um, Miles Davis says, play the space, not the notes. And if I knew that quote, I've forgotten it. And I'll have to think about that as I play this week and play a mm. bit more space. I too often ground the space. But <laughs> if, if I can lean into that part of your question, Jared, I think um, I'm 47 now and our church is a gritty neighborhood church engaged in the brokenness of the neighborhood. And we planted Kinbrace 20 years ago, which provides welcome and advocacy for people on the move here in Vancouver. And, but at age 47, I think I'm aware that the most creative notes are going to be played by people who aren't me. Uh, I'm, I'm mm. watching to see what the people in their thirties and the people in their twenties are going to imagine. You know, I mean, I spoke about, a minute ago, the creativity of the covenant or the creativity of some of these New Testament writers. And to me, those examples show that we can be really daring and bold and joyful and imaginative as we step out in the name of Jesus in responding to forced displacement, responding to brokenness in our neighborhoods. And having written this book, um, I mean, Luke and I are committed to continue to advocate until the day we die. But I'm just, I'm step ready to stand on the sidelines and to be the cheer squad as people step out with with creative initiatives people in of any and every age mm. i think one thing that um struck me when um chatting with mark about plans for the book and then writing the book was that both in the biblical narrative and also in the examples in recent years of people doing justice uh, with refugees, on behalf of refugees, um, in collaboration with refugees. There's so much uh, joy, and Mark mentioned joy himself, there's so much joy and celebration in, in the, and Mark can tell you much more about the feasting that goes on in the Old Testament um, with the stranger who's been welcomed into the heart of community. And you see, I, I always keep going back to the joy that we saw briefly in, in Germany in 2015, when Angela Merkel opened Germany's borders um, yeah. 
and over a million asylum seekers from Syria and elsewhere um, came into Germany in, in the space of a few months. And the joy um, felt by the German people mm. um, for a time, at least, um, a joy in doing the right thing, a joy in doing the right thing in community with each other, a joy in doing the right thing in a way that was atoning to some degree, as Merkel acknowledged, for Germany's past sins uh, as an act of justice, but also as an act of repentance. And, um, yeah, just the way that the German nation seemed to be transformed by that experience, at least for a time, mm. just as you see... Um, that Israel could be transformed by uh, this joyful welcoming of the stranger. Mm. The dominant image in our book is that, that image of cultic celebration that we see in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 16 is one passage that we lift out, and it's, a, it's just a celebrative harvest before the Lord to which the stranger, the orphan, the, and the widow were invited. In other words, the family, but everyone becomes family together as a pilgrimage from the farm, mm to the chosen place or to Jerusalem. And there before the Lord, they feast, there's music, there's singing, there's thanksgiving. And cultural anthropologists have done a lot of work on feastings and they tell us that feasting forges families. Feasting knits people together as kin. And mm. so what we see in the Old Testament with this cultic feasting is people becoming family together. And there's this beautiful divine movement of bringing the weakest to the center of that mm. family, but it's so joyful. We're all celebrating and dancing and feasting and eating before the Lord, becoming family. And that is a picture of joy that so quickly outstrips the kind of selfish exclusionary mm. kind of policy and flinch that we can so often have in Western culture or in any culture. What a beautiful, wonderful way to live Jesus has invited us into. And, of course, we see the joy of that in the Gospels. Jesus, mm -hmm. some, some New Testament scholars say that Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's really good. So, I mean, taking all, I mean, the way that you guys have encountered Scripture, um, your jazz I, I would love to to see some jazz right now um with deuteronomy 10 18 through 19 some some <laughs> improvisation um engaging the tradition maybe a little syncopation right do um can, can you uh can we dwell with this uh, passage a little bit can you guys lead us into that um right now i'm gonna go first and you follow luke luke Sure, sure. Piano introduction rather than a drums introduction. <laughs> well, the, the passage really caught our attention because it, it's there's three loves in the passage. If you look from verse 15, verse 18 and 19, and the three loves are Yahweh loves Israel, God's people, and Yahweh loves the stranger, and then Israel is to love the stranger. And we see... If you can picture three points of the triangle, there's Yahweh, Israel, and the stranger, and it's this triangle of love relations. And the reason why that's significant for us isn't because uh, we're reading it just in terms of love as we think of love in Western culture, but because of what that word love or ahav 
in ancient Hebrew meant. And it was actually a covenant term, going back to that idea of covenant. We have many, many uh, tens, if not hundreds of copies of ancient treaties. And treaties are treaties, but it's really the, the documentary language of international politics. The great kings made a covenant with the subordinate kings. And love was a technical terms for this relationship. So it's language of covenant commitment, which means absolute solidarity of it's a, it's language of family. Uh, in fact, in these treaties, the great king called the other kings his son or his brother. It's language of family. And it's also language of emotion that you see that clearly setting in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 10, Yahweh set the divine heart on Israel. So think of this now, think of this triangle that we've set up of Yahweh at the top of the triangle of Israel and the stranger. Can you picture that in your mind? This triangle with Yahweh at one point and Israel and the stranger at other points. And then think of them in this loving covenant relationship. Well, let that guide our theology for a minute. Mm. Think of of our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as a God who makes a covenant, not only with Israel, but a covenant with the stranger, with the refugee, with the person on the move. And that's actually the biblical revelation. We see it there in Deuteronomy 10, but we see it clearly in other texts as well. What a remarkable thing to think that our God is a God who makes a covenant, which means a a commitment of solidarity and loyalty, a commitment of love to the stranger, and then says to God's people, you make a covenant with a stranger too. That's what you need to do in an imagio day kind of correspondence. You do what I do because I have a covenant with you. Now let's start our systematic theology in terms of our doctrine of God with that little baby, that our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, makes a covenant with a stranger. Run your biblical theology and run your ethics through that, and you're being evangelical. Huh. We're taking scripture, seri- <laughs> taking scripture seriously. Sometimes yeah. uh, we can be evangelical, and we can just make the mistake of reading our own tradition uh, into the Bible instead of reading what the Bible says. We have to be able to be surprised by scripture again and be guided by scripture. And of course, you know, you might say, well, that's just one verse, um, you know, for hours about how we see this throughout the Old Testament. But just at a gut instinct level, is this not what we see in our Lord Jesus Christ? As he, you know, Luke 15, one and two, this man befriends sinners and tax collectors and eats with them. And so Jesus tells the parable of the lost coin and the parable Mm. of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost son a God who makes a covenant with a stranger and calls God's people to do the same. Wow. Yeah. One, one idea we explore in the book is um, how, uh, so we, we have this motif of jazz um, and we, we talk in some detail about the various institutions established uh, for Israel, the, the feasts, the laws, etc. Um, that are in place for welcoming the stranger and celebrating and enfolding the stranger. And we use the motif of jazz to make the point that perhaps we're not called to replicate exactly these same institutions, but there is a clear, a clear sense in which we are called um, to institutionalize love for the stranger. Um, and we explore what a difference 
um, yeah, institutions that enable and um, and facilitate the love of the stranger rather than these fear-based institutions that so many of our Western societies have developed to the point that we just take them for granted. The harms that those various um, institutional practices and rules and policies and assumptions do to vulnerable people, even vulnerable people that um, are welcomed into community, the suspicion with which they're treated, the 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 way that they're uh, that asylum seekers are forced to display the vulnerability in order to pass tests uh, to be granted asylum, um, and we try to imagine what what it would mean to not just um, shift our communal uh, disposition towards the strangers, but to institutionalise a much more loving dis- disposition towards strangers in ways that may not, as we say, may not replicate those that you find. Um, in Old Testament Israel, but but uh, serve the same function. Yeah, and that yeah, I yeah. find it hard to imagine. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I imagine that you get because um, I, I just this week someone in fact it was <laughs> someone asked. I mean they were asked they weren't actually really meaning it, but they were this kind of you know well what do you say when people think you're being too political or what what kind of pushback I'm sure you receive some and how have you guys. Um, kind of thought mm. through responding to people who are thinking like, well, yeah, I'm just supposed to like be kind to strangers, but you're not actually supposed to imagine a different way of organizing our society for vulnerable yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and I guess to to sharpen that in terms of the Australian context, or, or um, the context of where Drew is in the United States as well, mm. um, what it means when people want to practice a personal party of kindness while children are in cages along borders or in Australia, Mm, while mm. 400 people still exist in offshore detention centres where the government made a deliberate policy decision to remove from communities um, people needing safety. So there is no personal, um, so personal kindness with no proximity can can never actually connect and then it can never grow into um, instituting love, which is the phrase that you use that I, I love. Yeah, I, I, I read uh, uh, an article earlier today, which is a couple of weeks old now, pointing out that Australia's offshore detention costs $4 million per person detained. It's just yeah. absurd. It's ridiculous and horrendous, obviously, too. Um, I think the primary motivation for writing the book that Mark and I had was a realisation that... Um, for Mark, when he would offer biblical arguments for welcoming the stranger today, he would get the pushback, but you misunderstand politics. And there's entire books written by well-meaning Christians arguing that, yes, uh, you're called to love your neighbour, but um, there's so many, they just pile caveat upon caveat in getting from that at the individual level to the level of the state that really their argument is be quiet, leave it up to elected officials, mm-hmm. um, that morality is for churches and individual Christians to pursue in their relation with others. Governments have different responsibilities, governments for various reasons, some of which are completely imagined, some of which are misunderstood, I think, um, 
are, are obligated to care only for their citizens. They so often point to Romans 13, which says nothing of the kind. Uh, yeah. but, but so often I hear even, even Christians who are calling for a more generous refugee policies so often begin with Romans 13, 13 and say, well, obviously we have to give priority to citizens. And then the leftovers, the scraps, uh, if we have anything, we can perhaps think about welcoming some strangers. Um, and so, the, and so that was what Mark was confronted with, and the other direction I was finding, making, uh, trying to undo some of those uh, political arguments and explain how, in political theoretical terms, in historical terms, in international relations terms, there are, there are these real genuine uh, possibilities for doing justice uh, with vulnerable, uh, on behalf of vulnerable strangers and foreigners, uh, and other marginalised members of community and i'd get the pushback from christians ah but you misunderstand theology you misunderstand the bible yes there's some verses here and there that call israel to welcome the strange but what about romans 13 for example um or what, what about this particular strange interpretation of of deuteronomy that i've just come up with um and so we thought uh we wanted to uh address kind of both objections in the single book in the single argument um yeah perhaps mark's mark's got related thoughts on we address early on how we suspect many readers may be turned off quite quickly by the fact that we're engaging with politics and not just individual morality and we try to overcome that and explain why a biblical understanding of ethics of kinship involves much more than us um, in our individual relationships with the mm. people that we happen to come across on our street or in our community. Mark and Luke, by the way, and I apologise that Drew and maybe um, listeners have heard this anecdote from me before, but in our second ever Love Makes Away action, we had a worship leader from a conservative church who participated and she was brought before her elders as to why um, she would be involved in a nonviolent sitting in a politician's office to see children released from indefinite detention. And mm. that opened up Romans 13, this uh, group of elders mm. um, uh, in, in front of her. Mm. And her response, I go back to all the time because it, it's, it's just, it, it's so elegant. And mm. she just, uh, but this is Paul who wrote a bunch of letters from prison, mm. right? <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. That's just wonderful. Hey, yeah. I mean, uh, he wrote Romans 13 he wrote the book of romans from rome under house arrest right there you go and he was probably executed there hmm. uh, that's great context I mean, little is own, everything little and jesus <laughs> i mean it's i mean my point there is of course jesus about disobeyed the laws of syria palestine uh in many ways at the same time not not being seditious but hmm. and this is all through the biblical story you think of but i think fundamentally we're misunderstanding the scope of the biblical story we're, we're narrowing the biblical story and narrowing the gospel when we see the narrative arc of the biblical story as running from genesis 1 to revelation 22 we see that it's about the creation of the world the despoilation of that good creation as a result of human sin genesis 3 all the way to the renewal of the creation in revelation 21 22 and the gospel, Jesus comes in the middle of that as the creator who's renewing the world in his life, death, and resurrection. 
and we we and so for example i mean we could we could pen drop in anywhere the story as long as we understand the the missional arc of the biblical story which is god setting out in christ to recover the divine purposes of the creation so for example colin gutton a wonderful uk scholar who died a few years ago spoke of jesus calming the storm which was he spoke of jesus uh, standing and stilling a creation that was in thrall to evil and mm-hmm. i love that th- i love that line of jesus stilling a creation that was in thrall to evil that jesus strode around the streets of galilee as a creator loving the world to life wow. and so i mean if we go back to the beginning of the story speaking of politics you go to the tower of babel episode in genesis chapter 11 which is just after the creation event and just after the fall the tower of babel is in fact uh, a parody of the babylonian empire right. and yeah. it's a symbol uh, a literary uh, signification of the aggrandizement and the accumulation of the babylonian empire who by doing this were trying to deify themselves and bring the god down i mean of course in babylonian terms it was all about royal ideology and the sponsorship of the gods and this is the true story of the world where these biblical writers are saying uh, no uh, our god is bigger than that and our god will separate and scatter and there's a beauty even in that in this proliferation Mm. of languages but yet uh, in the end uh that kind of self-aggrandizement and accumulation is not the way that god's created the world to work here's a remarkable thing and this is easily missed i think that in the calling of israel genesis 12 1 to 3 the calling of abraham which is the beginning of the calling of israel god is transforming a nation a nation, one nation out of all the nations to show the rest of the nations what being really human is all about. In other words, Israel was to show the rest of the nations what God created the world for, how God wants human society to function. And the remarkable thing about the calling of Israel is that every sphere of society is touched. I mean, there is politics, there are priests, there are kings, there are sacrifices, there are human relations. If you read the Torah, it addresses all of human life. Now, I remember as a young adult evangelical reader being quite puzzled why the biblical story starts with this very odd thing, which is a nation. After all, doesn't the real stuff happen once we get to the church? But actually, the surprise is when we get to the book of Acts and we have these little house churches that aren't creating nations. I know that sounds weird, but what I'm saying is that the biblical story is creation-wide. And Jesus, Mm. in his resurrection, rose as the first fruits of this world renewed. Jesus' interest is in every sphere of society. And so when we get to ancient Israel, Genesis 12, and we see this whole nation being shaped by the Torah, by the law, that's what it should be, because this is a recovery of every aspect of the creation, and it includes politics, right? Mm. When we get to the church which is, and in Acts 1 and 2, uh, all of a sudden, and throughout the, this is the narrative arc of the book of Acts, it's the gospel going to the world in the shadow of the Roman Empire. The switch we have to make as Bible readers, and we have to be surprised by this if we're going to read the Bible aright, is that all of a sudden the church is in the shadow of the Roman Empire and have to yeah. work out their salvation very, very cleverly, a bit like Daniel did in, in the book of Daniel in the shadow of the Persian Empire. All of a sudden, in a multitude of cultures, in a multitude of house churches, we have to work out the comprehensive lordship of Christ, which attends to every aspect of the creation, 
up close and personal, but in the shadow of the empire without the political authority. So it, it creates uh, it, it quite a hermeneutical shift, but we have to still claim Christ's lordship over the whole creation. Yeah, that was long. No, it, it's great. Uh, yeah. What I'd like to do um, is to slow down a little bit because I'm aware that so many of our listeners are coming from uh, that geographical location just south of Canada and north of Mexico, where um, conspiracy theories all, all like um, often occupy pulpits. Uh, at this particular moment, and Mark, um, you've you've used the E word a couple of times in subversive ways, like um, uh, we see the term covenant being used or um, the Pax Christi uh, uh, being used. Uh, you're using the word evangelical to actually call to mind uh, something other than Trump supporters, which might be surprising um, uh, to some. I, I want to slow down enough to go, uh, we're in Deuteronomy, but, um, you know, the, the second law, it, like this is an odd end to the Pentateuch, right? Like, um, uh, not narrative, but a collection of sermons. It's like Martin Luther King's um, uh, The Strength to Love. Like uh, um, the, the first generation sucked after freedom and uh, did that weird detour for 40 years. And now, um, uh, hopefully with the next generation, there's some hope. I'm, I'm listening to you bring us into chapter 10 and also realizing that now, I'm not going to thus saith the Lord and um, go too charismatic, but there is a whole generation that simply can't come into a new reality in terms of what charismatic evangelical Pentecostal churches have been under um, Trump and equivalent kind of forms. And there's uh, also a hunger for a new generation to step into something that does look like an alternative to the nations. Or what I'd love um, uh, to explore with you both is and Drew, th this might be helpful that um you, you know we've we've uh, just done interview with brian zahn where we're looking at questions of postcards from babylon and what it is to to write in the shadow of a, a particular mm -hmm. empire um it, given those current realities at the moment i'm fascinated that um your book is structured bible um and i love how you name uh, the Bible as um, belonging to refugees, um, but it goes Bible, church, nation, world, or globe. And I know that's not accidental. Um, uh, I, I don't mind if we start with you, Luke, or with you, Mark, but I would love you to work us through the flow of that and how subversive that is given what evangelical means for so many people. Um, and it's not just a like US thing, right? Like the term evangelical is poisoned in the UK. It, it's poisoned in Australia. Um, uh, being in South Africa, it's poisoned there as, as well. Um, no one's thinking uh, a movement that is connected to the abolitionist movement uh, that is uh, believing in um, the democratic realities of the priesthood of all believers. It's become a signifier for something else. Can you talk us through um, uh, Bible, church, nation, world in that order? Perhaps you start, Mark, and then I'll um, take the second half. It's kind of, sure. we kind Probably. of wrote it in, uh, that Mark wrote uh, the bulk of the first half uh, Bible and church, and, and I wrote the bulk of the nation and globe. Um, yeah, in, in a way that, as you say, Jared, kept, kept kind of uh, building on each other in a way that would make sense to the readers we had in mind. Yeah. Hopefully. Oh, it's brilliant. It really is. Thank you. 
I mean, I, 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 to be sure, when 80% of white evangelicals in America elected Donald Trump, I think many of us wanted to flee from that, that term, even if we had uh, been content to close with us, ourselves with that term beforehand. I mean, words are contextual, aren't they? Uh, I mean, we're in Canada, and Jared and Luke, you're in Australia, and, and the word means something quite different, more of that British evangelicalism. There's no Republican mm. Party or anything like it uh, in Canada. Uh, or Australia, so it's not a not such a political term, though it's not without politics. But I, I, I don't. I, I'm only going to use the word evangelical so much as it communicates um, what I mean when I choose a word. For me, I'm starting with scripture, and I'm just deeply committed to Christ. Yeah, uh, I, I'm committed to Christ as the world's creator and savior, and and that's where my hope mm. is. My hope sure isn't in a book, uh, and my hope sure isn't. Uh, even in some creative politics, though I want to be a part of that. Mm. My hope is that when I look out the window and see the green here in Vancouver or the beautiful grey green there in Australia, I see the life of God, the creator. And and I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. And, and that takes me to the scriptures as the word of God. And I think we need to be broken by Jesus in the scriptures again. And I think whatever tag we want to use for ourselves, we have to come back to the God who has spoken the God who emancipated an enslaved nation in Egypt to form a people, to be a contrastive community that was in complete contradistinction to the oppression of Egypt. Yeah. You know, so I've been pastoring in justice seeking communities for 14 years, and we can sometimes have wonderful imaginations for humanity and community, but you go to the Bible and, and to me, the Bible trumps it every time, you know, you can't imagine something more creative and more prophetic than a Deuteronomic feast in Deuteronomy 16. Yeah. You, can't, you can't make a more creative set of laws than the Ten Commandments. You know, thou shalt not murder, said to a, a, a nation of bereaved slaves two and a half months after emancipation from slavery. Thou shalt mm. not murder means you guys are going to be totally different and you're going to have a ball. You know, you can't get more prophetic than the Beatitudes, you know? Yeah. And a Jesus who spoke this and then died for the healing of the world, you know. So I don't think it's about tags, you know, uh, what a word means in the vernacular in a cultural moment we have to pay attention to. Um, but I, I'm broken by Jesus. And uh, I think as a church, in the name of Jesus, reread scripture with a humility. That's what I get excited about. What about you, Luke? So, so that's good. the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And so I think there's a sense in which when we turn to consider the level of the nation and the level of the globe, we're trying to remain um, joyful and offering a vision for transformation. But we're also, just because of the nature of the debate that's out there, we're also having to just address constantly the, but what about kind of questions that we kept hearing as we we're writing the book and kept coming across um, when talking to people or reading what about national identity what about the idea of the sovereign state what about um, the fact that the the uh, good samaritan doesn't go to another country looking for vulnerable people in need but just happens to care for the person he, he happens to find uh, on the side of the road and then turning to the level of the globe uh, what about the fact that uh, Reinhold Niebuhr and others 
call for states to be much more concerned with their national interests than individuals should be for various reasons due to the anarchical nature of the international system and the aggressiveness of international politics. What about that? What about the fact that states don't seem to be able to cooperate with each other? Do we just end end the story by calling on individual nations to be more generous or is there a possibility for thinking much more collectively and um, and so, like for example, and, and we we deal with each of them, um, each of those kinds. Of, but what about issues in terms of the national identity uh, question? For example, um, we make this argument that well, of course, national identities and communal bonds and shared affinities are to be cherished, um, and and cultivated in so far as they're. Um, not departing from justice, but we need to recognise various things. We need to recognise, for example, that Australia's claims and America's claims to particular national identities are often uh, really relying on a sanitised betrayal of those nations and their histories. Um, And the identity and character of every nation is a product of history. And yes, um, the identities of nations may be marked by um, evidence of God's providential care and guidance, but they're off also often particularly um, uh, powerful, comfortable, wealthy settlers, settler states such as ours, marked and stained by the violent expulsion and exclusion of others. Yeah. Um, and, and that has shaped and continues to shape our national identity. So we need to be very careful before concluding that we need to be preserving this identity and that that may yet again justify excluding outsiders or excluding vulnerable people. It's, it's, um, uh, and then adding on to that, the fact that states such as ours have these programs in place where wealthy outsiders can buy in one way or another a, a fast track to citizenship, which yeah. tells you an enormous amount about the the actual identities of our states that's right uh, so suddenly we forget all these um, arguments about communal bonds and affinities and needing to preserve whatnot um, and ha- happily take the money um, so what then should national uh, national identity be about how should we think about it well we suggest that national identity is to be affirmed so long as it's oriented toward the biblical model of community that we find in the Old Testament. And that includes um, that the nation cares for the poor and the needy and the orphan, but also includes that the nation uh, cares for and cultivates kinship with vulnerable outsiders. And so whatever um, particular national identity and culture or tradition is going to be about, God's desire is that it also be about caring for the vulnerable, including the vulnerable stranger. Um, And we just, through the book, have to kind of deal with those, but what about questions again and again. Um, And it's an opportunity to uh, not just swat away complaints, but to hopefully present a more joyful, as we say, and transformative um, description of what community can be like and what national communities can be like and what the global community can be like. Mm. No, that's really good. And honest, I mean, this is, I mean, it's so needed. I think, so I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania, right? Central PA. Um, 
and in fact, so many people would, I'll joke, I, we joke and we say, you know, Pennsylvania, it's um, got Philly on one side, Pittsburgh on the other, and, you know, old Alabama in the middle, or hmm. some people call it Pennsylvania, <laughs> right, in, in central PA. <laughs> and there's a reason why they talk about the swing state, because so much of central PA, I mean, you got Confederate flags, for, I mean, we're in the north, and there's oh. Confederate flags and all this stuff. Right. Uh, it was just, it's just a very strange place, but um, not far from me, about an hour away from where I live, uh, we have the Berks County Detention Center, right? Mm. Um, and a lot of people are not aware that most people think of like, oh, Texas, they got all of them. Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, we have right. sitting an hour away from us, the Berks County Detention Center, where we've had um, uh, undocumented folks um, in detention there. And it's fascinating how hard it is to have conversations with Christians, right? Around mm. like mm. why this is a problem. And so, I mean, just that move again, highlighting what Jared was emphasizing that move from, I mean, these are folks who would evangelical and love it, mm. Bible church, right? Nation mm. world and to expand people's imagination and to reread carefully, right? Immerse oneself, dwell in the scriptures and what God is trying to do among us and invite us to imagine that kind of shalom. And I think that it's, it's so necessary, but um yeah i guess i guess that's that's that tension there of yeah of what actually exists and i won't lie like for the mm. very first time um it, it was during the trump administration where i actually i never seen ice agents in my neighborhood before right, yeah. right. um right. and i didn't i had never known personally i knew stories of but i never had met people that then eventually got deported um, and so just the the dynamics right now and largely from Christians, like they're, and I think you guys even mentioned that, I think in the book, right? That Christians are more likely in the United mm-hmm. States to be mm. hostile to refugees than folks outside of the church in the United States. And it's just, mm. it's just uh, depressing when you think about the vandalizing of the name of Jesus in that kind of way in our moment. So it's just really timely, I guess, and valuable. I can I'm thinking about all the different folks who, at least here in our region, who are doing work and trying to invite other people. There's a group called Milpa doing amazing grassroots work here that we're trying to collaborate with. And I'm just thinking like, this book is going to be really helpful, I think, to open up even further conversations, to expand people's imagination for this kind of biblical ethic of kinship that you guys talk about. Yeah. Thanks, Phil and Jared. Can I piggyback on what you're saying? Uh, I think that Bible church world or Bible church local community, society, global community. Mm. These are really important movements for preachers and for prayers, yes. I reckon. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that yeah, as, yeah. as preachers who are preaching scripture and as prayers, which is a lot of us, that to start with scripture and, they, and then there's a personal dimension also, right? So we, we ask that the spirit would transform us personally. And then we're in our worshiping community and we're praying and we're preaching for revival to come to our worshiping community so that we might find Christ's way and the spirit might show us and nourish among us Christ's way. But yet we're in a neighborhood. And so we're praying for our neighborhood and we're praying for that revival, that healing of the Holy Spirit to come to our neighborhood. And I don't think we can skip neighborhood. We're always incarnate in a particular place. Jesus walked mm. the streets of Galilee, Bethsaida, yeah. Capernaum. And then we move from our neighborhood to our city. And that entails political engagement. And we might need to march. We might need to advocate. We probably That's need right. to do all of those things. We need to write. And then we move from that to our nation. 
but within it, but as Luca's so good at doing, we have to think about the global community when it comes that's to right. the pressing issues of our time. So that's yeah. for our prayer. And for those of us who preach, that's for our preaching. Those of us who organize reading groups and advocate, it's all of those levels, right? It's mm. personal, it's worshiping community. It's got to be neighborhood. It's got to be city. It's got to be nation. It's got to be global because Christ takes claim to the lot. Mm. And Mark, that's where I found after the way that um, you, you both set it up and drawing on Luke's expertise in terms of that global knitting together of um, particular con concerns, um, to, to then use examples like Kim Brace and talk about um, what responding to the needs and advocating and that sense, because there's nothing like coming alongside people seeking safety to give you awareness of global realities. It changes the way that um, you read the news or watch the news or listen to the news. Um, the stories elsewhere um, are now connected to stories um, that you've prayed through and wept over and had the honor of holding from someone else. Um, would you talk us um, through the example of, of Kin Brace and yeah. um, how this is practical in terms of the, um, the biblical imagination of kinship and what it really means to, to have brothers and sisters um, and relate with brothers? And I, I don't know if I shared this with you both, Luke and Mark, but um, Drew's heard this from me before as well. But um, Kat and I were working our way through some of your preliminary stuff um, uh, for the book. Um, and we were using it as Bible study. Hmm. And it was actually, um, I think it was Deuteronomy um, 16. And uh, we were planning our um, uh, secret mini wedding because somebody <laughs> offered to pay for our honeymoon in yes, Hawaii before we um, had a, a wedding where yes. um, the, the larger community could gather in January. <laughs> yes. And um, so we're praying through that and realizing that, oh, it's not just my immediate family and Kat's immediate family, mm. but it's the friends that I live with at First Home Project who are family, who must be at this secret little celebration. Yeah. Um, th that came directly out of um, uh, reading your work and realising, actually, no, the, the scriptures are pushing back even um, uh, against, um, you know, I, I've been in, involved in this work for such time, but mm. my understandings of family was still so captive to larger society that the refugees that I was living with, I hadn't thought of um, involving in this. Mm -hmm. um, so would you talk us through mm -hmm. some of the practicalities where um, it doesn't get personalized? Um, and like, I, I love the example of Kim yeah. Brace. And I, I think yeah. their, their um, core principles are so helpful as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kim Brace is uh, just a few blocks from our house here and, uh, my little family, we don't live at Kimbrace, but we often during non-COVID go to the Tuesday evening community meal and you walk into Kimbrace uh, and you're greeted by the smell of cooking pots, you're greeted by the noise and crowd of about 30 people, uh, many of them newcomers to Canada uh, from all around the world and Kimbrace staff and volunteers and our whole nuclear family, my, my wife and my two kids, 10 and 7, I just caught up in the joy of this and the fun of this. And Kinbrace, of course, it comes from Kinbrace and Embrace. And the idea is, is to be a makeshift family. There's complexities mm. there because Kinbrace is always welcoming newcomers and newcomers tend to stay for about three months and 
then Kinbrace supports them as, the, as they move to the next phase of their life, which may include a refugee claim that Kinbrace will support them through. Will, it will doubtless include some, perhaps some education and housing is going to be a question and finding work, settling the kids into a school. And so it's makeshift family because Kimbrace has welcomed over 500 people over the last 20 years. But yet this idea of finding a place of mutual transformation where volunteers and staff and newcomers together are transformed and together find out what it means to be community as we kind of face almost the edge of life together and celebrate together that, that we've survived. And it's transformational for me as I sit across the table from a newcomer and I can't speak the language that they're speaking. Perhaps they're speaking Arabic, perhaps they're speaking Farsi, perhaps they're speaking another language again. And I, I encounter my own little displacement as I'm sitting there trying to make conversation and maybe feeling a little bit uncomfortable and really not sure what to say uh, as, as I'm eating my casserole on rice. And that's good for me. You know, I'm, I'm aware I'm sitting there thinking, man, I feel a bit uncomfortable here, you know. It's just a little window into what everyone in that room is is feeling, you know, and experiencing. And it's such a joy for me to to share this with my children, with our children, you know. Uh, it's awesome. A, a, uh, my seven-year-old son asked one of the staff members at Kimbrace, who's a very close friend of, of mine, uh, he said, uh, where do you live? And she said, I live on Vancouver Island, which is a short ferry ride from Vancouver. And he says, ah, Vancouver Island. Uh, was, is there a war there? You know, and, and my seven-year-old's uh, yeah. trying to piece together, you know, were you here? Yeah. You, you must be a newcomer. And why, why did you leave where you came from? You know, this is mm. good, you know? And yeah, it's great. This is, this is, Jesus lived in the grid of the world. Jesus lived in the brokenness. And somehow that's a joy. So these core values of trust, and of prayer, of a shared life, and just discovering what it means to live in our vulnerability together and supporting one another as, as newcomers face this particularly vulnerable time of transitioning to a new country. And, and the, the transformative experience of going to a refugee hearing and just sitting at the back and listening to these dear precious people answer these very confronting questions. And then at the end of the day to hear the, 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 the board member's decision, you can stay or you're going back to your, your place of origin. And just to be there in that vulnerability and to be human in that place and for myself to be powerless, it's very confronting. And this is where global issues become very personal and the stakes yeah. are high. What's significant, I think, Drew and Jared, is that worshiping communities can do something, you know? That's yeah. right. You yeah. might be in the US and you might be in a state where refugees are settled, or you might not, but you're certainly in a place where immigration is politicized. Oh, yeah. And maybe you don't know any refugees and they won't be resettled in your state, but is there someone who needs your tenderness? Yeah. And how can your church cultivate the tenderness of Christ and have that change your day-to-day -day life and your politics? Or how can you as a worshiping community try and express the diversity that we see in Jesus' life in your worshiping community? How can you lean into that? Yeah, that's good. That's so good. Yeah. Um, I, in fact, I'm curious. I mean, 
I'm still um, blown away by just the richness of you two working on this together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I am curious, I guess, like, I mean, you guys both are passionate about this, both have lived experience, both in different disciplines. And then has this been like in the works for a very long time? Like how long have you guys like always known like something like this is gonna be coming along or like um, how long has this been in the works for you guys to be collaborating in this particular kind of way? Yeah, I don't think we always had it in mind. We, um, I spent a couple of months with my family in Vancouver um, living around the corner from Mark and his family in 2016. Um, yeah. And we were just chatting about the research that we were both doing at the time. Um, and it just looked more and more like we were thinking along the same lines and passionate about the same things and had, I, I kind of, I might have this wrong, but I felt like we both had questions that we didn't necessarily know how to answer and it turned out the other person at least had a more, bit more confidence that with some further thought and, and careful research, et cetera, they could answer. Um, which, as I was saying before, we kept having people shifting the goalposts. Every time you're talking about uh, justice for vulnerable people and displaced people, uh, if you talk about it in biblical terms, someone would invoke politics. Uh, and if you talk about it in political terms, someone would invoke the Bible, um, just as a as a way to, um, yeah, it just seemed to always stop the conversation from resolving, um, and we were just kind of slowly realizing that if we can try and address everything at once, uh, insofar as we're able, that could be a, a useful contribution and an enjoyable way to to keep in touch once we're back on other sides of the world again. Um, yeah, yeah. Luke, can I ask about that? Because we've we've spoken a little bit uh, around uh, Mark's pastoral realities of um, uh, seeking to be faithful in teaching this and how people mm. respond with, oh, you're getting political. Mm. But I'm thinking about your professional life um, and, uh, you, you know, uh, Aussies, we have a, a similar mm. kind of reaction if somebody talks about something spiritual, right? Like right, our right. university setting um where uh but politics is fair game but if you mm. uh, bring up um uh something that is to do with religion and not in a french kind of aggressive way but mm. more kind of like mm. uh no one's no one's into lacrosse why are you talking about lacrosse mm. right now mm. like mm. you know it's just kind of odd like what oh right you're you play lacrosse okay um, <laughs> uh, can can you kind of Talk mm. us through how um, uh, both both your witness personally and, and seeking to be a witness in your vocation in the university, and and the lap over between those worlds in the in the different Australian setting where um, uh, often uh, religion doesn't come up in the same way that it does on the North American continent. Yeah, yeah. Um, to be honest, I haven't felt any pushback from mm. colleagues or from my institution. Um, and yeah, when I talk about this project with people, they're either um, excited or not particularly interested, uh, but no one has been <laughs> antagonistic at all, I think. Um, and, 
And I think it's partly because um, people in Australia are aware that so much um, of the support for Australia's refugee policies and the Trump administration's refugee policies and other other refugee policies that you see in in states of Western Europe are championed by Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we've mentioned before, often uh, the support is higher among Christians uh, than for other categories of people that are, that are surveyed um, when these questions are raised. And so people see that this this can be it can be a useful thing to write particularly for Christians and to try to speak particularly to Christians to point to a better way. And if that requires um, uh, making Christian arguments, biblical arguments, then uh, people are very keen for me to go and try to do so. Mm. Uh, yeah. And like at the same time, the, the um, on the back of those biblical arguments and the bi- biblical narrative that we um, talk through in, in the book, we also back it up with a whole lot of political theory and international relations theory and history that is hopefully um, um, convicting for some uh, Christian readers. Um, And so I've been able to draw on my own um, research from other projects in doing that. One thing that became more and more important to me as we were um, getting towards the end of the book, and I think is, um, yeah, increasingly important for me uh, in the months since is just this idea that, I think we've just learnt, we've, we've taught ourselves to think of these things in the language of charity and generosity and benevolence towards <laughs> vulnerable strangers. And it's a very discretionary thing that we can choose to do. We can choose to be charitable or not. Right. Uh, and it's good to be charitable, um, but there are plenty of reasons uh, that people take for granted that, well, you can't always be charitable or you can't always be so charitable. And so it's a very discretionary act. But just as we were working through it, reflecting on scripture, but also reflecting on history in particular, it just became clearer and clearer that we had to make the case that so much of uh, how we should think about relating with vulnerable uh, people that we know and vulnerable foreigners and outsiders and strangers and, and, and particularly displaced people who we're focusing on has to be thought of in terms of justice in terms of reparations for past wrongs in terms of collective repentance that's right um and not just for uh, for for both um historical sins and ongoing sins like we talk about um yeah the rottenness of settler colonialism that that um that has practiced extermination and exclusion and land theft and wealth extraction and resource extraction um, that goes unrepaired still to today. There's this wonderful US-based scholar, Tendai Achume, who has an argument, uh, an article she calls de- uh, Migration as Decolonization. Mm. And I think in the title alone, you get the picture of, of her powerful argument that this, the, the, um, the welcome of outsiders in need has to be a part of this ongoing, unfinished process of decolonization That's today. Right. And it's unjustifiable to argue anything different. But then you think about today, you think about the idiotic wars that our country has has waged uh, in association with other Western countries um, in in recent decades that have 
contributed to the vulnerabilities, sustained the vulnerabilities and the instabilities of, of societies and regions of entire regions of the world, leading to the kinds of crises that generate displacement. And these displaced peoples are the ones that um, so often my government is turning away, even, even though we're so culpable, so responsible for their um, situation of displacement. And mm. you can, yeah, we can relate it to the climate destruction, the un unjust economic practices, the arms trading that we do when Australia wants to do even more. It's, it's yes. just so, um, it's wrong. And to, talk, to, to then think about relating to refugees in terms of well, how much of our interests do we want to give up or how charitable mm -hmm. do we want to be, it just feels rotten to me. Um, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, uh, Uncle Kev and uh, Buzzcott, uh, an Aboriginal elder, uh, from South Australia, we were together in 2006, and uh, I'd just been knocked um, uh, to the ground on national TV by uh, Star Force riot police, and uh, um, uh, Uncle Kevin was being challenged by some uh, um, about some of his his tactics there, and he started yelling at these uh, predominantly like European Australian protesters out in the desert at this refugee detention centre. And he said, um, if you lot aren't going to let them in, we should send all you mob home as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it perfectly captures the bookend of um, unmasking Australian white supremacy mm. is the treatment of um, those most recently arrived and uh, uh, those First Nations people that um, uh, uh, settler colonialism sought to literally mm. remove. Mm -hmm. And then things become completely mm. exposed you see them yeah yeah as they are and another aspect of that is that um for a century or so in, in the kind of 16th and 17th centuries a leading argument being used to justify these colonial conquests was that indigenous populations were being inhospitable to european uh visitors who simply Goodness. wanted to trade or visit or or establish settlement on their lands and it was their it was the inhospitality of uh, these inv these more vulnerable indigenous populations that justified war against them, and these yeah. same Europeans who who now enjoy so much land, so much wealth, so much comfort, are being inhospitable um, to those in need. Um, yeah, the yeah, hypocrisy I, is is ugly. Using the Bible both times to justify it, hey, they right, used Old right. Testament texts mm. of uh, war against uh, Edom and Moab, for example, Deuteronomy two to justify colonial conquest on the basis of inhospitality and mm. now use Romans 13 to justify not mm -hmm. welcoming immigrants in the US, for example. Uh, and so we need to re recover the arc of the biblical story, which was the renewal of all creation and run that thread running through the arc of the biblical story, which is this ethic of tenderness, the tenderness yes. of Christ. Right, right. If yeah. we lose the tenderness of Christ and that cruciform posture, then we've lost it. Recently, Mark, I've been spending time with um, the witness of um, Daniel Berrigan, who in my early 20s was very, very important to me. But there's a wonderful collection that Stringfellow um, brought together on his witness. And I think it's called A Witness to Tenderness, which is an amazing way to describe somebody who was at the top of the FBI's most wanted list. But I think that's what um, uh, the 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 text that he swam in his whole life and uh, prayed and lived calls us to. 
Yeah, the tenderness. Yeah, how can how can we? I mean, the, God is a creator God, and a God who's renewing the creation and renews it in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. How can a biblical ethic be anything but tender? Mm. An ethic of healing. We're called to be healers, right? Amen. Yeah, so good, so good. I, I know. I mean, you guys are talking about Australia, and I, every time you guys talk about Australia, I'm like, and in the U.S., we're like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the historical amnesia, I mean, just wild what goes on on the border because I mean, literally, and it wasn't that long ago that the United States stole the territory from Mexico, right? Yeah. Um, so just the arrogance and the obnoxiousness around our conversations around the wall and all this stuff um, is just horrific um, and embarrassing. But, but I think most don't even, aside from lacking all compassion and tenderness, there, there's not even an awareness of the hypocrisy and irony of what we're doing in, in our mm-hmm. moment as well. And, um, and again, it's Christians at the forefront who are pushing um, these narratives. And um, I mean, just the other day I saw on Facebook, it was uh, a Facebook friends, friends, right? Posting on their page, but just talking about American first and da, 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 and all this stuff. Yeah. And, um, and you know, that's the public witness, unfortunately of the church. Yeah. So there's mm. so much work to do, but I, I do think, um, what you guys are offering, it's liberating, it's revolutionary yeah. for, uh, thinking and dialoguing around these things in the life of the church. And I think that it's going to be such a valuable resource and we need this. We've always needed it, but, it, but it's certainly needed right now. Yeah. And I, I thought of, uh, um who wrote um brother to a dragonfly um campbell um about his work coming alongside both being involved in uh the freedom movement the civil rights movement and then coming alongside um uh uh, poor white what some people designate as white trash that were involved um uh but it, it um part of the actually no it was um Clarence Jordan, Clarence Jordan, when asked why he um, knew his Bible so well and um, had most of the New Testament memorized in, in Greek, he said he didn't want some um, uh, jackleg preacher tying him up in knots because he didn't know his Bible. And uh, like Luke was sharing about the reception um, in his university setting, um, people know that if you can actually um, prove to Christians that the weight of um, what is most dear to them is on the side of the vulnerable, um, that's a favor to everyone in society. Mm-hmm. So right. brothers, thank you for doing that work so well, so so beautifully. Um, uh, you, you had us uh, chat, tapping along, if not getting up to dance while listening to the jazz you were playing in this text. It's, it's been, uh, I, I think it's truly really important. And I hope particularly in the US it's embraced. I think something about, um, yeah the setting of uh, Australia and Canada as parallel universes with very different politics is actually incredibly helpful in opening up imagination uh, in this conversation as well. So thank you both heaps. If people want to go deeper with your work and witness, um, how can they find uh, uh, what you're doing? I'm on Twitter, uh, Luke underscore Glanville, I think. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Brilliant, Luke. Love you to read our book and invite you to join an online course with me at Regent College. If you like, come and join Missional Church or Biblical Ethics and we'll have a ball. That'd be awesome. Um, 
an online course on this book. Can I can I put out a request for that? I think that's <laughs> that that would be fun um, to bring some. Um, uh, those whose own experience has been seeking safety, like our sister Carla, who's uh, been mm. in this conversation um, with us. Um, uh, also those who have been um, advocates and practicing hospitality, as well as the scholarship um, of, of people across different fields. That's what your book brings together. I would love to, to see that happen as well. So maybe we should uh, um, chin wag about um, those kind of shenanigans at some stage. Sounds great. Well, Wonderful. bless you, good brothers. Thanks heaps. Yep. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yep. Wonderful conversation. We're grateful. Awesome. Great to spend time. Yep. Awesome. Thanks, Carl. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.